There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Gregory Paul A. Kraminski. Thank you. And Colin Andrews. I'm not going to tell you my middle name, Greg, ever. We've been talking about markets and particularly the bond market for a couple of years now, really. And today, guess what we're going to talk about, Greg? I'm really not sure. We're going to talk about the bond market. So we're really pleased to have a great guest join us today. Tony Crescenzi is an executive vice president, market strategist, and portfolio manager in the New York office for PIMCO. And prior to joining PIMCO back in 2009, he was chief bond market strategist at Miller Tabak and worked for Lehman Brothers and Prudential. So obviously he's got some experience, Greg. I think so. He's also written six books, which is six more books than you or I have written, including The Strategic Bond Investor and Beyond the Keynesian Endpoint. He regularly appears on CNBC and Bloomberg Television and other financial news media. And now the highlight of anyone's career, Greg, a guest on the Free Lunch Podcast. So Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. And it is an honor. And I have a middle name. It's common for an Italian, Joseph. My wife has a middle name that I keep forgetting because it's... <laughs> not a name I've heard many times. <laughs> he quizzed me last week and I got it wrong. <laughs> so you've only been married a few weeks then, have you? <laughs> Together seven years. There you go. Let's kick it off. Tony, just a quick question, which is not a challenging one. We're interested in how you ended up where you are today. You've got obviously a long and storied career to date. Catch us up a little bit on how you got here. So quickly, it's 40 years now. March 28th marked 40 years since I began on Wall Street at 115 Broadway for Prudential Securities. It's a feat from Wall Street. It was a room with lots of brokers, as they called them, but now they're called financial advisors. In fact, they wore more brokers then when what mattered most was simply getting a ticket, a trade ticket to earn commission. Those days are long gone and for the benefit of investors, because today an advisor is truly an advisor, well-versed on many different matters. So I started there, went to Lehman Brothers, worked in the 104th floor of the World Trade Center. Marvelous experience. Then to Militabak, a boutique firm, dealt with hedge funds and big firms, including PIMCO. Did a lot of bond market type stuff, investing for clients, trading futures and bonds, and began to get quoted a lot somehow, kind of feeds on itself in the media in the 1990s and kept going and would write a lot. I like to write ever since second grade. When I spit out a bunch of book reports, more than the teacher wanted, I've been writing. And I wrote a lot in the 1990s and would write notes on the market. And I would send it to lots of people, including to Bill Gross, the founder of PIMCO in the 1990s. I simply saw a check mark on Bloomberg that he picked it up. I was super excited. I was like begging the elephant, as they say, <laughs> watch seeing the movie Wall Street. Somehow, 10 years later, he had people call me and said, do you want to come interview? And since you're working in New York, out in Newport Beach. So I got interviewed there and 
picked up, so to speak. And it's been a great experience traveling around the world for PIMCO, seeing the biggest investors in the world, large and small, though. I've seen and been to many events with direct clients, meaning could be a doctor, a dentist, a bus driver, et cetera, that have money invested with PIMCO. I've seen many, many people around the world. And I always try, and this is the final words, I think the allure to me of Wall Street is not the dollars and cents. Of course, that's important, but it's in how you can help people. Because if you managing money for a hospital, for example, as we do, you're helping that hospital to take care of patients better, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many stories behind the monies we manage, millions of investors affected by us. So I take it very seriously. That's where we are today. I think you make a good point there. Greg, I'm going to cut you off here just for a sec. Sorry about that. But I was hanging out with a friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he was telling me how important our jobs are. I found that very interesting. It is. I mean, that doctor, if you help him, somehow it's helping his life in one way or another, in ways we can't imagine. Maybe it pays for a wedding or college education or philanthropy or what have you, and enables a better retirement for individuals. So it's vitally important to people's lives. And I try to impress that upon the young, and I'm not part of the young anymore at age 59. So I try to say to them, you've got to think about the end client because they are what matter most. And so that's why performance matters so much. Right on. Well, listen, before we dive into some questions about the markets and things, can you maybe just expand a little bit for us on when you're not spending your day on podcasts like ours, what does a market strategist do? How do you spend your days? Well, today would be a good example. i attempted to watch Elon Musk launch a spacecraft, but they abandoned it. I was watching the live casting of it, but it eventually got scrapped. I'm looking forward, as I did in the 70s, seeing the Apollo astronauts land, and I wanted to be a land on the moon. I wanted to be an astronaut back then. I saw it on a tiny black and white (laughs) television. Looking forward to, in a couple of years, a woman and the first person of color stepping on the moon on our giant 80-inch ultra HD TVs. So I get interested in astronautics and astronomy. So I wind up drifting there, not to Facebook, but to there. I read a lot of articles on markets and the economies and things like that. And I spent a lot of time with kids and I was just in Disney World. So you try to lighten things up, find some levity amidst the serious stuff that we all do. Well, let's get into the serious stuff. There has been a lot of volatility over the last few years, and most recently, the failure of a couple of U.S. banks, takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS. Lots of people are asking, are we headed for another GFC, another global financial crisis? The market behavior since early March has been pretty good, pretty stable. One could say it's nothing like 2008. The great innovation in the post-GFC period has been the stress testing of banks. Some might dispute that because the stress testing of banks failed to identify the problems in those few banks. But more broadly, it has kept the system, and that's the emphasis here, the system whole because we had major banks, and you know the names, all looking pretty good. In fact, earnings from a major company, major bank today, JP Morgan, seemed to set that stock, the equity of that company, on fire. I should say of late, doing pretty well. The big banks have done well. So the stress test imposed upon the banks subject them to a 55% drop in the stock market, a 40% drop in real estate prices, 
10% unemployment and 10% drop in GDP, which hasn't happened since the Great Depression. So what banks are supposed to do in this simulation run by the Federal Reserve is pass the test with a certain level of capital, money invested basically in the bank, to meet a regulatory minimum. And in this stress test with those conditions, banks still had capital levels that were twice the regulatory minimum. Now, unfortunately, some banks have slipped through the cracks. That's what happened here in this recent weeks, past month. And there were failures, two of the biggest failures in history. But the system looks good. But let me give one quick perspective. As I mentioned, I've worked on Wall Street since 1983. In the 1980s, there were lots of bank failures. What I'm going to get to in all of this discussion is the idea of maintaining a long-term orientation. So in the 1980s, from 1984 to 2000, there were 1,600 bank failures. From 2000 to now, another 600. So 2,200 U.S. banks have failed in my 40 years. But what has happened to the stock market? An investor that invested in the Dow Jones Industrial Average 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I joined Wall Street, would have made 30 times their money. And the S&P 500 has gone up 25 times. So you get lots of things that happen. And we're talking here only about the banking situations, lots of geopolitical situations, et cetera. But yet investors in the end seem to fare well. And so with the long-term orientation, one shouldn't worry too much about these sorts of things. And instead think of them as opportunities to invest in high quality companies that over the long run would be expected to fare well in an ever-growing economy. 2,200 banks have failed since Tony started his career. Tony, have you been responsible for any of these 2,200 bank failures? (laughs) Yeah, once I pulled my money up. It's intriguing to think, though, and I didn't see the red flags. No one really did. Throughout the past year, like many individuals, I decided, hmm, my big bank isn't paying me any money. I didn't like that I was getting paid 0.01% on my money. Actually, 0.02. I'm a preferred customer, so I got double the rate. (laughs) Whopping 0.02. Felt insulting knowing that T-bill rates, U.S. Treasury bill rates, were 4% plus. Today, a three-month T-bill is about 5%. So why would an individual want to keep money in a bank rather than have the money perhaps invested in a highly liquid investment such as treasuries and certain bonds? So the money was flowing out and I was doing it myself and knew many others that were doing it and it kind of fed on itself. And that's what led to some of the stress. The so-called deposit beta was too low, meaning the Federal Reserve was raising its policy rate from zero to now near five. The extent to which banks were keeping up with that was quite low relative to normal. Individuals like me said, no, 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 get me out. I don't want my money in a bank paying me nothing. Look at the nice interest payment I can receive monthly, quarterly, whatever. It's what caused a lot of stress. But it seems to be simmering down. The last two weeks, there's been inflows into banks in the entire system. Of course, we see stability in bank stocks, which is an important signal in itself. We talk to a lot of bond investors. Obviously, all of our clients hold bonds. And a lot of bond investors were to say the least, is surprised by last year's bond returns. And many people haven't experienced anywhere near that kind of volatility in the bond market in their investing lifetime. So maybe you could just talk about how unusual last year was 
for the bond market specifically. People expect the stock market's going to go down 20% from time to time, but nobody expects the kind of volatility in the bond market. Correct, Greg. And in fact, typical volatility in a normal bond fund, by normal, I mean a core bond fund, based on the Bloomberg aggregate, which contains treasuries and mortgages and corporates and asset-backed securities. It's an aggregation of the bond universe. Typical volatility in that is called 5-6% per year. So that's the most that bond prices tend to move in a year on average for a portfolio having an average duration, as they call it, or maturity, somewhere near six and a half, seven years. So it was quite dramatic to have double-digit losses in the bond indices. One should think about it, though, as an anomaly in the sense that the reason it occurred was because of the extraordinary period of low and negative interest rates. Remember, $18 trillion of bonds globally had a negative yield. So if you invested money in a German Bund, a 10-year German Bund, a couple of years ago, you would put $1,000 in. The return was a minus 0.5%. You've wound up with less than $1,000 after a year, but investors did that for the safety and soundness. So what happened in 2022 is a reversal of that. The markets said, well, this post-GFC period, and this is probably be the long-term perspective at some point, the post-GFC period was an anomaly. And now we should see interest rates returning to longer-term type levels, not high. In fact, the bond market today in the US is priced for a 3% policy rate in the future and for it to stay there for a while rather than go back to zero. But it was that reversal of zero and negative interest rates that caused those losses. And because of the losses, I'll keep this in mind as an invest going forward as when you're investing in the bond market, the likelihood of yields falling again to zero is shrunk simply by the experience of the past year in the sense that what investor in bonds in the past year will forget what happened in five years, 10 years. It'll take a generation before investors can forget what happened. So that will make it very unlikely that investors will dive into German bonds at minus 50 basis points again. And so that'll limit how far yields decline, which will limit how much they would rise in a typical cycle the next time. So these returns today, final word is Returns look a lot better relative to prospective and historical volatility with bond indices yielding four and a half to five percent or so, roughly in line with the typical volatility. And that four and a half percent today on the Bloomberg aggregate is about two points more than the average yield of the past decade. It's about a point more than the past two decades. You get the point. 30 years, it's roughly. 25 basis points higher. So yields today look attractive relative to where they've been the last 30 years. And even going back 40 years when yields were higher, just below where they were on average the past 40 years. And so investors are shielded, in other words, in a sense, have a buffer today that they didn't have last year in higher income levels. Tony, I was listening to your interview on CNBC from, I think it was from last week, and you were talking about money market funds being a fool's game. Can you explain that for our listeners, what you meant by that and what you mean by that? When I saw the quote, I was not terrified, but I was worried (laughs) that (laughs) I don't want investors to think that money market funds are a bad place to be. I've written a bit about the money markets. I have one of my books was a 1200 page book 
on the money market in 2007. That's literally the first year I began drinking coffee at age 43. <laughs> I realized <laughs> the power of it. I needed it to write 1,200 pages. So I know a little bit about money markets and money market funds. But so what I meant there is that it's a fool's game to simply focus on money funds themselves. And I have money funds personally and would advise investors to consider them as well. But the fool's game comes from thinking it's going to last. At some point, the Federal Reserve lowers its policy rate. Let me go backtrack a second. Today, for example, in money market funds, many of them have average maturity of under one week. So what they tend to invest in is this thing called repo. So investors with cash swap their cash with investors that own treasuries in this thing called the repurchase agreements, very short overnight type of return. That's about 5%. So what if the Fed changes that overnight rate downward? And that's what the market thinks will happen eventually. And then eventually your 5% yield in your money market fund or four and three quarters, something like that, depending on the fund, goes down to three. So why not consider then the chance at getting a capital gain when those yields decline, because of course, when yields on bonds fall, bond prices rise. So an investor that's in a money market fund, what I'm trying to say is misses out on the chance for a capital gain and locking in a better long-term return. So it's a good thing to have for liquidity, but one has to think about the diversification benefit, the price movement that could occur when yields decline. And that typically happens when something bad is happening, perhaps like a recession, et cetera. And you were recently talking as well about a growth recession. So can you maybe talk a little bit, Tony, about what is a growth recession and should we be worried? And is that the kind of thing that might send interest rates lower? Thanks for the question, Rick, because, and I love the idea of a growth recession in part because I feel like I'm the only one talking about it at times. I don't see it <laughs> talked about much. The growth recession is sort of another way of, saying soft landing, when an economy grows below its potential, what is growth potential? How fast can the Canadian economy grow, the US economy grow? It depends on two things, primarily. How many humans are there to make things? What's the change in that per year? In Canada, it's a little faster because it's been faster immigration. In the US is about 0.2.3% per year change in labor force, an increase. And then secondly, how productive are they? How productive are these humans? The typical productivity increase in the U.S. is about 1.5%. So add 1.5 to 0.3, the people part. You get the ability to grow 1.8% without creating much inflation. Of course, there was a lot of growth above that after the pandemic due to lots of spending from governments, and it created inflation. But when growth falls below it, what if a company, company XYZ, can grow 1.8% per year can handle an increase in demand of that amount each year. What if it grows, the demand is slower? Then the company says, well, I got too many people, too much productive capacity. So let me cut back. Let me shut this factory. Let me not open this factory. Let me cut back on workers, cut back on hiring to more closely align productive capacity with the demand. And so it can create conditions that feel like a recession. So a growth recession is anywhere between 0% growth and 1.8 in the United States. And so it seems like, based on recent data, the U.S. economy is growing below 1.8, but it's not quite a recession, which is a contraction in growth, but it's somewhere between 0 and 1.8, which is casting off a feeling that's like a recession, a feeling coming from 
for example, industrial output in the United States is down three of the last six months. The major manufacturing index, the ISM index, is down five months straight, meaning there's a contraction in output. So starting to cast off these feelings of recession without having an actual recession happening. And it's how you get the magic of a lower inflation rate, which is starting to happen without a recession. This is so-called an elusive soft landing. So we're in that zone now. It's hard to maintain because the negativity starts to feed on itself. So we'll see. But our call at PIMCO is for a shallow recession, if we have one, starting perhaps by the summer. You sort of led us into my next question because we're talking about a lot of things that are hitting the headlines these days. You've just talked about maybe a shallow recession. So what does that mean for inflation, interest rates, and bond yields going forward? We always like to be optimistic. Should investors be optimistic at this point? I'd say as a long-term-minded individual myself and Timco having a long-term orientation, one should have optimism that the pie globally will grow. Geopolitics gets in the way of people thinking that at times. Keep in mind, for example, the Cold War, 1946 to 1991, the U.S. S&P 500 increased 11.4% per year. Inflation was 4%. So that was a nice return during that period. In the late 2010s, lots of strain began to develop with China, tariff war, if you will, and the stock market did not handle that too well, but ultimately it did. Markets are up more than 50% since that period. Didn't pay to get overly worried. Probably won't pay in the next decade or so. If you think about the idea that China wants to double the size of its economy by 2035, it'll probably fall short, we think, but it'll have strong growth. We think 5 6% this year. And that's good for investors in credit and equities. All of that said, it's a time to be a little more cautious about taking risk And so you want to be up in quality because there is a chance of recession. And during those periods, there's a down movement in equities and a widening of credit spreads. And so you've got to be up in quality now. Interest rates may fall during that period. Not a lot, but especially since the markets are priced for Fed's rate cuts already. The market, for example, is priced for the Fed to raise its policy rate a quarter point on May 1st, but then to cut its policy rate by three quarters of a point after that by the end of the year. That's priced into bonds. And so there isn't a lot of decline likely in yields, although we see some scope for them to decline. Whatever the case, much higher interest rates seem less plausible. And what the Fed has done is probably enough, especially when you consider the banking story we talked about and how that might mean one of its five transmission effects. And I'll go through that really fast is now going to really help to slow the economy and keep inflation down. So there's five ways that Fed policy transmit is through stock prices, which are down. They haven't gone anywhere for a year plus. Bond yields, which are up considerably. Credit spreads, which are wider. Bank lending standards, which are tighter now because of the bank story. And the value of the dollar, which has got stronger from the peak from over a year ago, that strength limits U.S. exports. So all the channels seem to be working for the Fed to get the job done. And that'll keep bond yields from rising much more from here and with potential for decline. Final word is to think about where inflation expectations are. It's in the low twos for the U.S. with yields in the fours on average for bonds. Looks like a positive real return is likely from here since starting yields, the major determinant of future returns. 
I know you obviously look at the yield curve and how that's changed over the last few years and got quite inverted at one point and it seems to be flattening a little bit now. Is that a fair statement to say? And what does that mean? I noticed yield spread between the 10 and 30 years steepened a lot. When the curve is moving closer to a point of getting away from inverting and towards steepening, where short-term rates start to fare better relative to long-term rates, meaning by better, I mean they start to stop rising or they start to fall. We may be on the precipice of an end to inversion, not an end to the inversion, I should say. What I mean is toward the deepening inversion and an end to the flattening trend. It may stay flat for a little while, may stay inverted for a little while, but with the prospect of rate cuts out there, you could imagine a team with three-month T-bill today at 5%, if there are rate cuts, suddenly that yield drops sharply, then there's a steepening. And the key spread to watch historically in terms of judging the future of the economic situation is the three-month T-bill, which I just mentioned at 5%, versus the 10-year Treasury note. So the current spread is wide enough to suggest a recession is out there, meaning it's not far away within the next year or less within the next year, I should say. The signal's there, and it's been a certainly reliable one for years, three-month T-bill versus the 10-year note. Interesting, though, is that, okay, as you say, whether we're in a recession, we're going into a recession, whether it's a soft landing or whatever, it probably didn't stop you from spending a lot of money at Disney World last week or whenever that was. It did not. I thought of that. How does the consumer behavior react to the yield curve? I don't think they care. You're right. And I recall many years ago, 1990s, there was lots of talk of recession, like after 94, because the bond market was in a bad mood and was the worst year ever that year until recently. And the stock market wasn't doing faring well. And I remember seeing this giant crowd in Disney World. And I know that's the anecdotes like that are not the best way to determine the outlook for growth. That feeling has stayed with me. The idea that we carry on. Individuals, this is from Adam Smith in the 1700s, wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. Famous book, of course. The idea being that the wealth of nations is created by individuals like you and I wanting to go out there into the parks and perhaps just have a good time. And we endeavor to do things through our work, through business ownership, creation, to enjoy our lives. And as each individual does that, collectively, we create the wealth of nations. And I think that's inherent in people and it'll never end. And that's why I tend to lean toward personally optimism, because we all endeavor to enhance our lives in various ways. And I'm thinking here about the money side, of course. I think you've probably just answered my last question because your time is valuable. And that question would be, well, what would be the best piece of advice you would give to a younger version of yourself, knowing what you know now, after 40 years in this business, when it comes to investing? Patience. Even as I worked in the World Trade Center for Lehman Brothers, I was impatient. I wanted to do more. I'd worked three years straight without taking a day off of any kind, vacation, personal, health, nothing. And I just wanted to keep going. I wanted to keep rising. Had I waited, everything would have gone well there, I'm sure. And I was impatient then. I had to find ways to keep it all going and did. So patience there, but that was also a lesson for investing. I've luckily applied it many times. Whenever I've seen markets decline, I 
was patient about it and bought the market, so to speak. Try to be like Warren Buffett and be optimistic as an investor. So I'd say stay with that optimism about the future and play the ups and downs. Don't get captivated by near-term stuff, short-term stuff. And that's in both directions. Think of the cryptocurrencies. Many rode the wave up, bought at the wrong time, got hurt. And you really have to do, that's another lesson then, do your homework and be sure it's a sturdy investment for the long run. And if it is, if you can make that conclusion after lots of research, just stay with it and just keep going, keep at it. Markets will go up and down lots. I mean, I'm not saying anything extraordinary here. That's an obvious thing, but it's hard to do emotionally at times to, to get in, to buy, to take risks when everything feels bad. The expression, of course, is buy when there's blood in the streets. And I hate the way that sounds, but that's the way it is. Of course, you've got to watch it when things get awfully rosy as well. So that patience, patient investor idea is important. Super important. We've had, Greg, how many clients do we meet with these days? They go through, oh, the markets were down this, they were down that. And you're probably just going to tell me to stay the course. <laughs> and the answer is always yes. That's what we're going to tell you. Yeah, look, look for opportunities in all of that. That probably takes us to the end of our formal questions, don't you think, Greg? It does. So are we going to hit Tony with a speed round? I think we should. Are you up for this? You've done all the heavy lifting. This is just the easy part now. I think I could do it. All right. <laughs> so when you're not at Disney World, what else do you do for fun when you're not working? So I'm interested in NASA, especially interested in what SpaceX is doing. find it fascinating. And I own a Tesla, seeing the Teslas drive astronauts to the rockets. And it's interesting to see the private sector involved and extremely excited to be thinking about the Artemis program. Artemis, by the way, is Apollo's sister. The Apollo program sent men to the moon. The Artemis program will send women as well. And a woman will land on the moon. The first person of color in two years. And I'm awfully excited about that. So that's one of the major things I do. And of course, I'm Italian. I like to visit Italy as often as I can and <laughs> do all things Italian. Us Italians can be, as with many others, proud of their heritage. Thank goodness there's lots of restaurants that favor <laughs> who I am, so to speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. And what about any books that you're reading right now? Well, he's probably writing. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I've written six books, and as we mentioned earlier, and I want to write a seventh, but it wants to be a novel. And I have this fantasy that every writer does of writing the next great American novel. And mine will be about Wall Street. I'm conceptualizing that, trying to read things that might fit with my concept. I've been told to read a book by William Shatner, of course, from Star Trek fame and recently flew to space. And he's over 90 years old. People be fascinated to know that. And he's witty, like to read witty things like that as well. Those are the things I have on the docket right now. Well, and you mentioned William Shatner, who of course happens to be Canadian. Yes, good segue. So maybe yes. we should ask you, have you spent much time in Canada, first of all? I'd say dozens of times. You know you've been to Canada a lot when you've also been to Saskatoon. Hey, that's where I'm from. Which is not very highly populated, as you know, <laughs> compared to the typical place you'd think might be Toronto, Montreal, but I've been also to Saskatoon. So I've, dozens of times I've loved going to Canada. So when you were in Saskatoon, did you stay by the North Saskatchewan River, some swanky hotel? or My colleague Alex Heron, 
I think we probably had a decent place to go. I found it charming. I found it interesting to see that the cars, I've lived in California, looked a little dirtier than the ones in California. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, there must be science behind that, but I'll find out. So you've mentioned being in Saskatoon. One of the questions we always ask our U.S. guests, and this is based on your 40 years experience in the investing industry, could you please spell Saskatchewan for us? Oh, God. <laughs> Google it. I know, there we go. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. Fair. I tend to be a good speller. I can surprise myself when I start spelling. Sas, no, you see, I can't. There you go. Okay. S A S K. You're on the right track. A T E U A. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. so uh, close. You're so getting there. A U A S. But I, I'll tell you this, Tony, like nobody's <laughs> ever gotten it. So. Oh, my. Heavens. There it is. I see it on Google now. There we go. Hey, well, I guess that probably wraps us up for today. It does. Boy, we really appreciate you taking time out of what's obviously a typical busy day for you, Tony, to spend time on our podcast. Very kind of you to have me. Just hanging out with a couple of guys from Saskatchewan. That's That's, right. That's pretty fun. I'm not going to get nailed on that one next time. Got it. It's still like kitchen. Catch a while. You got it. You got it. All right. Thanks again, Tony. We really appreciate your time. And Greg, one last thing. Are we recommending that people invest in PIMCO funds? Of course we are. Of course are. we are. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. We do. So thanks again. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.